Chapter fifty three of The Cloister and the Hearth by Charles Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. Diary. This first day of January, I observed a young man of the country to meet a strange maiden, and kissed his hand, and then held it out to her. She took it with a smile, and lo, acquaintance made, and babbled like old friends. Greeting so pretty and delicate I ne'er did see, yet were they both of the baser sort. So the next lass I saw a coming, I said to my servant lord, For further penance, bow thy pride, go meet yon base-born girl, kiss thy homicidal hand, and give it to her, and hold her in discourse as best ye may. And my noble servant said humbly, I shall obey, my lord. And we drew rein and watched while he went forward, kissed his hand, and held it out to her. Forthwith she took it, smiling, and was most affable with him, and he with her. Presently came up a band of her companions, so this time I bade him doff his bonnet to them, as though they were empresses. And he did so, and lo, the lasses drew up as stiff as hedge-stakes, and moved not, nor spake. Denis, ay, 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 pardon the company. This surprised me none for so they did discountenance poor Denis. And that whole day I wore in experimenting these German lasses, and twas still the same. An ye doff bonnet to them, they stiffen into statues, distance for distance, but accost them with honest freedom, and with that customary and though rustical most gracious proffer of the kissed hand, and they withhold neither their hands in turn nor their acquaintance in an honest way. Seeing which I vexed myself that Denis was not with us to prattle with them. He is so fond of women. Are you fond of women, Denis? And the reader opened two great violet eyes upon him with gentle surprise. Denis, ahem! He says so, she comrade. By Hannibal's helmet, tis their fault, not mine. They will have such soft voices, and white skins, and sunny hair, and dark blue eyes, and Margaret, reading suddenly, which their affability I put to profit thus. I asked them how they made shift to grow roses in Yule, for know, dear Margaret, that throughout Germany the baser sort of lasses wear for head-dress naught but a kranz, or wreath of roses, encircling their bare hair, as laurel Caesars. And though of the worshipful scorned, yet is braver, I wist, to your eye and mine which painters be, though sorry ones, than the gorgeous, uncouth, mechanical headgear of the time, and adorns not hides her hair, that goodly ornament fitted to her head by craft divine. So the good lasses, being questioned close, did let me know. The rosebuds are cut in summer, and laid then in great clay pots, thus ordered, 
first bay salt, then a row of buds, and over that row bay salt sprinkled, then another row of buds placed crosswise, for they say it is death to the buds to touch one another, and so on, buds and salt in layers. Then each pot is covered and soldered tight, and kept in cool cellar. And on Saturday night the master of the house, or mistress, if master be none, opens a pot, and doles the rosebuds out to every female in the house, high or low, without an grudge, then solders it up again. And such as of these buds would full-blown roses make, put them in warm water a little space, or else in the stove, and then with tiny brush and soft, wetted in rainish wine, do coax them till they ope their folds, and some perfume them with rose-water, for alack their smell it is fled with the summer, and only their fair bodies lie withouten soul in tomb of clay awaiting resurrection. And some with the roses and buds mix nutmegs gilded, but not by my good will, for gold, brave in itself, cheek by jowl with roses, is but yellow earth. And it does the eye's heart good to see these fair heads of hair come blooming with roses over snowy roads and by snow-capped hedges, setting winter's beauty by the side of summer's glory. For what so fair as winter's lilies, snow eclept, and what so brave as roses? And shouldst have had a picture here but for their superstition. Leaned alas in Sunday garb, cross-ankled against her cottage corner, whose low roof was snow-clad, and with her crants did seem a summer flower sprouting from winter's bosom. I drew rein, and out pencil and brush to limn her for thee. But the simpleton, fearing the evil eye or glamour, claps both hands to her face, and flies panic-stricken. But indeed they are not more superstitious than the Sevenbergen folk, which take thy father for a magician. Yet softly, Sith, at this moment I profit by this darkness of their minds, for at first, sitting down to write this diary, I could frame nor thought nor word, so harried and deaved was I with noise of mechanical persons, and hoarse laughter at dull jests of one of these party-coloured fools, which are so rife in Germany. But, oh, sorry wit, that is driven to the poor resource of pointed ear-caps and a green and yellow body. True wit, methinks, is of the mind. We met in Burgundy an honest wench, though over-free for my palate, a chambermaid had made havoc of all these zanies, droll by brute force. Oh, digressor! Well, then, I, to be rid of roaring rusticals and mindless jests, put my finger in a glass, and drew on the table a great watery circle, whereat the rusticals did look askant, like venison at a cat. And in that circle, a smaller circle, the rusticals held their peace, and besides these circles cabalistical, I laid down on the table solemnly yon parchment deed 
I had out of your house?' The rusticals held their breath. Then did I look as glum as might be, and muttered slowly thus, Vidiamus, quam diu tu fictus morio, vosque veri stultai, odibaitis, in hac aula morarai, strepitantes ita et olentes, ut julcissime nequeam miser scribere. They shook like aspens, and stole away on tiptoe one by one at first, then in a rush, and jostling, and left me alone. And most scared of all was the fool, never earned jester fairer his ass's ears. So rubbed I their foible, who first rubbed mine, for of all a traveller's foes I dread those giants twain, Sir Noise and eke Sir Stench. The saints and martyrs forgive my peevishness. Thus I write to thee in balmy peace, and tell thee trivial things scarce worthy ink. Also, how I love thee, which there was no need to tell, for well thou knowest it. And, O oh, dear Margaret, looking on their roses, which grew in summer but blow in winter, I see the picture of our true affection. Born it was in smiles and bliss, but soon adversity beset us sore with many a bitter blast. Yet our love hath lost no leaf, thank God, but blossoms full and fair as ever, proof against frowns and jibes and prison and banishment, as those sweet German flowers are blooming in winter's snow. January 2 My servant, the Count, finding me curious, took me to the stables of the prince that rules this part. In the first court was a horse-bath, adorned with twenty-two pillars, graven with the prince's arms, and also the horse-leecher's shop, so furnished as a rich apothecary might envy. The stable is a fair quadrangle, whereof three sides filled with horses of all nations. Before each horse's nose was a glazed window, with a green curtain to be drawn at pleasure, and at his tail a thick wooden pillar, with a brazen shield, whence by turning of a pipe he is watered, and serves too for a cupboard to keep his comb and rubbing-cloths. Each rack was iron, and each manger shining copper, and each nag covered with a scarlet mantle, and above him his bridle and saddle hung, ready to gallop forth in a minute, and not less than two hundred horses, whereof twelve score of foreign breed and we returned to our inn full of admiration, and the two varlets said sorrowfully, "'Why were we born with two legs?' And one of the grooms that was civil, and had of me trink-gelt, stood now at his cottage door and asked us in. There we found his wife and children of all ages, from five to eighteen, and had but one room to bide and sleep in, a thing pestiferous and most uncivil. 
Then I asked my servant, "'Knew he this prince?' "'Aye, he did, and had often drunk with him in a marble chamber above the stable, where, for table, was a curious and artificial rock, and the drinking-vessels hang on its pinnacles, and at the hottest of the engagement a statue of a horseman in bronze came forth, bearing a bowl of liquor, and he that sat nearest behoved to drain it. "'Tis well,' said I, "'now for thy penance. Whisper thou in yon prince's ear that God hath given him his people freely, and not sought a price for them as for horses. And pray him look inside the huts at his horse-palace door, and bethink himself it is well to house his horses and stable his folk.' said he, "'Twill give sore offence. "'But,' said I, "'ye must do it discreetly, and choose your time.' So he promised, and riding on we heard plaintive cries. "'Alas!' said I, "'some sore mischance hath befallen some poor soul. "'What may it be?' And we rode up, and lo, it was a wedding-feast, and the guests were plying the business of drinking, sad and silent, but ever and anon cried loud and dolefully, "'Say te frolich, be merry!' January 3 Yesterday, between Nuremberg and Augsburg, we parted company. I gave my lord, late servant, back his brave clothes for mine, but his horse he made me keep, and five gold pieces, and said he was still my debtor, his penance, it had been slight along of me, but profitable. But his best word was this, I see tis more noble to be loved than feared. And then he did so praise me as I blushed to put on paper, yet poor fool would fain thou couldst hear his words, but from some other pen than mine. And the servants did heartily grasp my hand, and wish me good luck. And riding apace, yet could I not reach Augsburg till the gates were closed. But it mattered little, for this Augsburg it is an enchanted city. For a small coin one took me a long way round to a famous postern called De Einlasse. Here stood two guardians like statues. To them I gave my name and business. They nodded me leave to knock. I knocked, and the iron gate opened with a great noise and hollow rattling of a chain, but no hand seen nor chain, and he who drew the hidden chain sits a butt's length from the gate, and I rode in, and the gate closed with a clang after me. I found myself in a great building with a bridge at my feet. This I rode over, and presently came to a porter's lodge, where one asked me again my name and business, then rang a bell, and a great portcullis that barred the way began to rise, drawn by a wheel overhead, and no hand seen. Behind the portcullis was a thick oaken door, studded with steel, it opened without hand, and I rode into a hall as dark as pitch. 
Trembling there a while, a door opened and showed me a smaller hall lighted. I rode into it. A tin goblet came down from the ceiling. By a little chain. I put two batson in it, and it went up again. Being gone, another thick door creaked and opened, and I read through. It closed on me with a tremendous clang, and behold me in Augsburg City. I lay at an inn called the Three Moors, over an hundred years old. And this morning, according to my way of viewing towns to learn their compass and shape, I mounted the highest tower I could find, and setting my dial at my foot, surveyed the beautiful city. Whole streets of palaces and churches tiled with copper burnished like gold, and the house fronts gaily painted and all glazed, and the glass so clean and burnished as tis most resplendent and rare, and I, now first seeing a great city, did crow with delight, and like cock on his ladder, and at the lower foot was taken into custody for a spy, for whilst I watched the city the watchman had watched me. The burgomaster received me courteously, and heard my story, then rebuked he the officers. "'Could ye not questioning me yourselves, or read in his face? This is to make our city stink in strangers' report.' Then he told me my curiosity was of a commendable sort, and seeing I was a craftsman and inquisitive, bade his clerk take me among the guilds. God bless the city where the very burgomaster is cut of Solomon's cloth. January 5. Dear Margaret, it is a noble city, and a kind mother to arts. Here they cut in wood and ivory that tis like spider's work, and paint on glass, and sing angelical harmonies. Writing of books is quite gone by, here be six printers. Yet was I offered a bountiful wage to write fairly a merchant's accounts, one fugger, a grand and wealthy trader, and hath store of ships, yet his father was but a poor weaver. But here in commerce, her very garden, men swell like mushrooms. And he bought my horse of me, and abated me not a jot, which way of dealing is not known in Holland. But, oh, Margaret, the workmen of all the guilds are so kind and brotherly to one another, and to me. Here, methinks, I have found the true German mind, loyal, frank, and kindly, somewhat choleric withal, but not revengeful. Each mechanic wears a sword." The very weavers at the loom sit girded with their weapons, and all Germans, on too slight occasion, draw them and fight. But no treachery. Challenge first, then draw, and with the edge only, mostly the face, not with Sir Point. For if in these combats one thrust at his adversary and hurt him, tis called ein Schelemstücke, a heinous act, both men and women turn their backs on them, and even the judges punish thrusts bitterly, but pass over cuts. 
Hence, in Germany, be good store of scarred faces, three in five at least, and in France, scarce more than one in three. But in arts mechanical, no citizens may compare with these. Fountains in every street that play to heaven, and in the gardens seeming trees, which being approached, one standing afar, touches a spring, and every twig shoots water, and souses the guests to their host's much delectation. Big culverins of war they cast with no more ado than our folk horseshoes, and have done this fourscore years. All stuffs they weave, and linen fine as ours at home, or nearly, which elsewhere in Europe vainly shall ye seek. Sir Printing Press, sore foe to poor Gerard, but to other humans beneficial, plieth by night and day, and casteth goodly words like sower afield. While I, poor fool, can but sow them as I saw women in France so wry, dribbling it in the furrow grain by grain, and of their strange mechanical skill take two examples. For ending of exemplary rogues, they have a figure like a woman, seven feet high, and called Jungfrau. But lo, a spring is touched, she seizeth the poor wretch with iron arms, and opening herself, hails him inside her, and there pierces him through and through with two score lances. Secondly, in all great houses the spit is turned, not by a scrubby boy, but by smoke. I mayst well admire and judge me a lying knave. These cunning Germans do set in the chimney a little windmill, and the smoke struggling to wend past turns it, and from the mill a wire runs through the wall and turns the spit on wheels. Beholding which I doffed my bonnet to the men of Augsburg, for who but these had e'er devised to bind ye so dark and subtle a knave as Sir Smoke, and set him to roast Dame Pullet. This day, January 8, with three craftsmen of the town, I painted a pack of cards. They were for a senator in a hurry. I the diamonds. My queen came forth with eyes like spring violets, hair a golden brown and a witching smile. My fellow craftsmen saw her, and put their arms round my neck, and hailed me master. O oh, noble Germans, no jealousy of a brother workman, no sour looks at a stranger, and would have me spend Sunday with them after matins, and the merchant paid me so richly as I was ashamed to take the gerd on. And I to my inn, and tried to paint the Queen of Diamonds for poor Gerard. But no, she would not come like again. Luck will not be bespoke. O happy rich man that hath got her! Fie, fie, happy Gerard that shall have herself one day, and keep house with her at Augsburg. January 8. With my fellows, and one Weit Stoss, a woodcarver, and one Hafnagel of the goldsmith's guild, and their wives and lasses, to Hafnagel's cousin, a senator of this free city, 
and his stupendous wine-vessel. It is ribbed like a ship, and hath been eighteen months in hand, and finished but now, and holds a hundred and fifty hogsheads, and standeth not but lieth, yet even so ye get not on his back, withouten ladders two of thirty steps. And we sat about the miraculous mass, and drank rainish from it, drawn by a little artificial pump, and the lasses pinned their crances to it, and we danced round it, and the senator danced on its back, but with drinking of so many garouses, lost his footing, and fell off glass in hand, and broke an arm and a leg in the midst of us. So scurvily ended our drinking bout for this time. January 10. This day started for Venice with a company of merchants, and among them him who had desired me for his scrivener. And so we are now agreed, I to write at night the letters he shall dict, and other matters, he to feed and lodge me on the road. We be many, and armed, and soldiers with us to boot, so fear not the thieves which men say lie on the borders of Italy. But an if I find the printing-press at Venice, I trow I shall not go unto Rome, for man may not vie with iron. Imprimit una dies quantum non scribitur anno, and dearest, something tells me, you and I shall end our days at Augsburg, whence going I shall leave it all I can. My blessing. January 12. My master affecteth me much, and now maketh me sit with him in his horse-litter, a grave, good man, of all respected, but sad for the loss of a dear daughter, and loveth my psaltery, not giddy-faced ditties, but holy harmonies such as Cule de Jatte made wry mouths at. So many men, so many minds. But cooped in horse-litter, and at night writing his letters, my journal halteth. January 14. When not attending on my good merchant, I consort with such of our company as are Italians, for tis to Italy I wend, and I am ill seen in Italian tongue. A courteous and a subtle people, at meat delicate feeders and cleanly, love not to put their left hand in the dish. They say Venice is the garden of Lombardy, Lombardy the garden of Italy, Italy of the world. January 16. Strong ways and steep, and the mountain girls so girded up, as from their armpits to their waist is but a handful. Of all the garbs I yet have seen, the most unlovely. January 18. In the midst of life we are in death. Oh, dear Margaret, I thought I had lost thee. Here I lie, in pain and dole, and shall write thee that which read you it in a romance she should cry most improbable and so still wondering that i am alive to write it and thanking for it god and the saints 
This is what befell thy Gerard. Yestreen, I wearied of being shut up in litter, and of the mule's slow pace, and so went forward, and being, I know not why, strangely full of spirit and hope, as I have heard befall some men when on trouble's brink, seemed to tread on air, and soon distanced them all. Presently I came to two roads, and took the larger. I should have taken the smaller. After travelling a good half-hour I found my error and returned, and deeming my company had long passed by, pushed bravely on, but I could not overtake them, and small wonder, as you shall hear. Then I was anxious, and ran, but bare was the road of those I sought, and night came down, and the wild beasts afoot, and I bemoaned my folly. Also I was hungered. The moon rose clear and bright exceedingly, and presently a little way off the road I saw a tall windmill. "'Come,' said I, "'mayhap the miller will take Ruth on me.' Near the mill was a haystack, and scattered about were store of little barrels, but lo, they were not flour-barrels, but tar-barrels, one or two, and the rest of spirits, Brandvein and Skidam. I knew them momently, having seen the like in Holland. I knocked at the mill-door, but none answered. I lifted the latch, and the door opened inwards. I went in, and gladly, for the night was fine but cold, and a rhyme on the trees which were a kind of lofty sycamores. There was a stove, but black. I lighted it with some of the hay and wood, for there was a great pile of wood outside, and, I know not how, I went to sleep. Not long had I slept, I trow, when hearing a noise I awoke, and there were a dozen men around me with wild faces and long black hair and black sparkling eyes. Catherine, oh, my poor boy, those black-haired ones do still scare me to look on. I made my excuses in such Italian as I knew, and eking out by signs. They grinned. I had lost my company. They grinned. I was and hungered. Still they grinned and spoke to one another in a tongue I knew not. At last one gave me a piece of bread and a tin mug of wine, as I thought, but it was spirits, neat. I made a wry face and asked for water. Then these wild men laughed a horrible laugh. I thought to fly, but looking towards the door it was bolted with two enormous bolts of iron, and now first, as I ate my bread, I saw it was all guarded too, and ribbed with iron. My blood curdled within me, and yet I could not tell thee why. But hadst thou seen the faces, wild, stupid, and ruthless? I mumbled my bread, not to let them see I feared them, but, oh, it cost me to swallow it and keep it in me. Then it whirled in my brain, was there no way to escape? 
said I. They will not let me forth by the door, these be smugglers or robbers. So I feigned drowsiness, and taking out two batson, said, Good men, for our lady's grace let me lie on a bed and sleep, for I am faint with travel. They nodded and grinned there, horrible grin, and bade one light a lanthorn and lead me. He took me up a winding staircase, up, up, and I saw no windows, but the wooden walls were pierced like a barbican tower, and methinks for the same purpose, and through these slits I got glimpses of the sky, and thought, Shall I e'er see thee again? He took me to the very top of the mill, and there was a room with a heap of straw in one corner, and many empty barrels, and by the wall a truckle bed. He pointed to it, and went downstairs heavily, taking the light, for in this room was a great window, and the moon came in bright. I looked out to see, and lo, it was so high that even the mill-sails at their highest came not up to my window by some feet, but turned very slowly and stately underneath, for wind there was scarce a breath, and the trees seemed silver filigree made by angel craftsmen. My hope of flight was gone. But now, those wild faces being out of sight, I smiled at my fears. What an if they were ill men, would it profit them to hurt me? Natheless, for caution against surprise, I would put the bed against the door. I went to move it, but could not. It was free at the head, but at the foot fast clamped with iron to the floor. So I flung my psaltery on the bed, but for myself made a layer of straw at the door, so as none could open on me unawares. And I laid my sword ready to my hand, and I said my prayers for thee and me, and turned to sleep. Below they drank and made merry, and hearing this gave me confidence, said I, out of sight, out of mind. Another hour, and the good Skidam will make them forget that I am here. And so I composed myself to sleep, and for some time could not for the boisterous mirth below. At last I dropped off. How long I slept I knew not, but I woke with a start. The noise had ceased below, and the sudden silence woke me, and scarce was I awake when sudden the truckle-bed was gone with a loud clang all but the feet, and the floor yawned, and I heard my psaltery fall and break to atoms deep, deep below the very floor of the mill. It had fallen into a well, and so had I done lying where it lay. Margaret shuddered and put her face in her hands, but speedily resumed. I lay stupefied at first. Then horror fell on me, and I rose, but stood rooted there, shaking from head to foot. At last I found myself looking down into that fearsome gap, and my very hair did bristle as I peered. And then, I remember, I turned quite calm, and made up my mind to die sword in hand. For I saw 
no man must know this their bloody secret and live. And I said, Poor Margaret! And I took out of my bosom, where they ever lie, our marriage lines, and kissed them again and again, and I pinned them to my shirt again, that they might lie in one grave with me, if die I must. And I thought, all our love and hopes to end thus. Eli, wished all, their marriage lines? Give her time, but no word, I can bear no chat, my poor lad. During the long pause that ensued, Catherine leaned forward and passed something adroitly from her own lap under her daughter's apron, who sat next to her. Presently thinking all in a whirl of all that ever passed between us, and taking leave of all those pleasant hours, I called to mind how one day at Sevenbergen thou taughtest me to make a rope of straw. Mindest thou? The moment memory brought that happy day back to me, I cried out very loud, "'Margaret gives me a chance for life even here!' I woke from my lethargy. I seized on the straw and twisted it eagerly, as thou didst teach me, but my fingers trembled and delayed the task. Whilst I wrought, I heard a door open below. That was a terrible moment. Even as I twisted my rope, I got to the window and looked down at the great arms of the mill, coming slowly up, then passing, then turning less slowly down, as it seemed, and I thought, they go not as when there is wind, yet, slow or fast, what man rid ever on such steed as these and lived? Yet, said I, better trust to them and God than to ill men. And I prayed to him whom even the wind obeyeth. Dear Margaret, I fastened my rope and let myself gently down, and fixed my eye on that huge arm of the mill, which then was creeping up to me, and went to spring on to it. But my heart failed me at the pinch, and methought it was not near enough. And it passed calm and awful by. I watched for another. They were three. And after a little while one crept up slower than the rest, methought, and I with my foot thrust myself in good time, somewhat out from the wall, and crying aloud, Margaret, did grip with all my soul the woodwork of the sail, and that moment was swimming in the air. Giles, well done, well done. Motion I felt little, but the stars seemed to go round the sky. And then the grass came up to me nearer and nearer, and when the hoary grass was quite close, I was sent rolling along it, as if hurled from a catapult, and got up breathless, and every point and tie about me broken. I rose, but fell down again in agony. I had but one leg I could stand on. Catherine, eh, dear, his leg is broke, my boy's leg is broke. And e'en as I lay groaning, I heard a sound like thunder. It was the assassins running up the stairs. The crazy old mill shook under them, 
they must have found that I had not fallen into their bloody trap, and were running to dispatch me. Margaret, I felt no fear, for I had now no hope. I could neither run nor hide, so wild the place, so bright the moon. I struggled up all agony and revenge, more like some wounded wild beast than your Gerard. Leaning on my sword-hilt, I hobbled round, and swift as lightning or vengeance, I heaped a great pile of their hay and wood at the mill-door, then drove my dagger into a barrel of their smuggled spirits, and flung it on, then out with my tinder, and lighted the pile. "'This will bring true men round my dead body,' said I. "'Aha!' I cried. "'Think you I'll die alone, cowards, assassins, reckless fiends!' And at each word on went a barrel pierced. But, oh, Margaret, the fire fed by the spirit surprised me. It shot up and singed my very hair. It went roaring up the side of the mill, swift as falls the lightning, and I yelled and laughed in my torture and despair, and pierced more barrels, and the very tar-barrels, and flung them on. The fire roared like a lion for its prey, and voices answered it inside from the top of the mill, and the feet came thundering down, and I stood as near that awful fire as I could, with uplifted sword to slay and be slain. The bolt was drawn, a tar-barrel caught fire. The door was opened. What followed? Not the men came out, but the fire rushed in at them, like a living death, and the first I thought to fight with was blackened and crumpled on the floor like a leaf. One fearsome yell, and dumb for ever. The feet ran up again, but fewer. I heard them hack with their swords a little way up at the mill's wooden sides, but they had no time to hew their way out. The fire and reek were at their heels, and the smoke burst out at every loophole, and oozed blue in the moonlight through each crevice. I hobbled back, racked with pain and fury. There were white faces up at my window. They saw me, they cursed me, I cursed them back and shook my naked sword. "'Come down the road I came,' I cried, "'but ye must come one by one, and as ye come ye die upon this steel.' Some cursed at that, but others wailed, for I had them all a deadly vantage, and doubtless, with my smoke-grimed face and fiendish rage, I looked a demon. And now there was a steady roar inside the mill. The flame was going up it, as furnace up its chimney. The mill caught fire. Fire glimmered through it. Tongues of flame darted through each loophole, and shot sparks and fiery flakes into the night. One of the assassins leaped onto the sail, as I had done. In his hurry he missed his grasp, and fell at my feet, and bounded from the hard ground like a ball, and never spoke, nor moved again. And the rest screamed like women, and with their despair came back to me both ruth for them, and hope of life for myself. And the fire gnawed through the mill in placen,
and shot forth showers of great flat sparks like flakes of fiery snow, and the sails caught fire one after another, and I became a man again and staggered away, terror-stricken, leaning on my sword from the sight of my revenge, and with great bodily pain crawled back to the road, and dear Margaret, the rimy trees were now all like pyramids of golden filigree, and lace, cobweb fine, in the red firelight. Oh, most beautiful! And a poor wretch got entangled in the burning sails, and whirled round screaming, and lost hold at the wrong time, and hurled like stone from Mangonel high into the air. Then a dull thump, it was his carcass striking the earth. The next moment there was a loud crash. The mill fell in on its destroyer, and a million great sparks flew up, and the sails fell over the burning wreck, and at that a million more sparks flew up, and the ground was strewn with burning wood and men. I prayed God forgive me, and kneeling, with my back to that fiery shambles, I saw lights on the road, a welcome sight. It was a company coming towards me, and scarce two furlongs off. I hobbled towards them. Ere I had gone far, I heard a swift step behind me. I turned. One had escaped. How escaped, who can divine? His sword shone in the moonlight. I feared him. Methought the ghosts of all those dead sat on that glittering glaive. I put my other foot to the ground, maugre the anguish, and fled towards the torches, moaning with pain and shouting for aid. But what could I do? He gained on me, behooved me turn and fight. Denis had taught me sword-play in sport. I wheeled, our swords clashed, his clothes, they smelled all singed. I cut swiftly upward with supple hand, and his dangled bleeding at the wrist, and his sword fell, it tinkled on the ground. I raised my sword to hew him should he stoop for it. He stood and cursed me. He drew his dagger with his left. I opposed my point and dared him with my eye to close. A great shout arose behind me from true men's throats. He started, he spat at me in his rage, then gnashed his teeth and fled blaspheming. I turned and saw torches close at hand. Lo, they fell to dancing up and down, methought, and the next moment all was dark. I had— Ah! Catherine— here, help, water, stand aloof, you that be men. Margaret had fainted away. End of chapter 53, part 3. Recording by Tom Denham.